to saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is the history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me here in the studio. First, a historian with the Joseph Smith Papers, Alex Smith. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Welcome. And also joining us again, our friend Shaylin Back. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shaylin. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. So, Alex, we've invited you here today because we have lots of questions uh, and we want to talk to you about Chapter 38 and Chapter 39 of Saints Volume 1. Man, there are some really difficult, fascinating things happening at this moment in church history. This summer and fall, uh, uh, early winter of 1842 is a busy time for Joseph Smith. He's uh, on the run a lot in the midst of a lot of personal responsibilities that he's trying to take care of. Let's start out just a little bit and orient our listeners. Um, Governor of Missouri is named Lilburn Boggs. He's no longer the governor, not a friend to the Mormons, and there's been an assassination attempt. Yes, so on the 6th of May in 1842, Lilburn Boggs was in his home in Independence, Missouri, and was shot from an assailant outside in the in the alleyway outside his home. Initially, the assumption was that he was fatally wounded and would die, and that was what was reported in newspaper accounts at the time. Fairly quickly, some suspects were taken into custody, but it didn't take long before fingers started pointing toward the Mormons because of this long-standing, uh, tense relationship between Boggs and the Mormons. He had been the one responsible for the famous extermination order driving the saints out of northern Missouri in 1838 and 39. And so fingers started pointing to Joseph Smith, uh, assuming that he had told the now famous Orrin Porter Rockwell to uh, to go and kill Boggs, uh, none of which, of course, was substantiated, but it resulted in what ended up being the second attempt by the state of Missouri to extradite Joseph back to Missouri. So Joseph's not in Missouri, yeah, where are they at this time? But it turns out that Rockwell is. He's in Independence at this time visiting his family. Yeah, that doesn't help with the alibi, does it? No. Um, but, yeah, correct. Uh, Joseph is back in Nauvoo, and that becomes a key issue legally. Uh, when Joseph finally goes before a habeas corpus hearing in January of 43 in Springfield in the Illinois capital, that issue of whether Joseph was even in Missouri and therefore could have fled from justice and, and been a fugitive from the state of Missouri. But no, Joseph's in, in Nauvoo and Rockwell's in Independence. Did, did anybody else have a problem with Lilburn Boggs? I mean, was he just an upstanding, everybody loved him kind of guy, except for the Mormons? Boggs had a number of opponents, uh, not only for religious re- reasons like the Mormons, but also politically within the state. A number of people had not been pleased with the way that he had handled uh, border conflicts with uh, Iowa Territory, for instance. Is anyone ever um, convicted of this uh, attempted assassination? No. Okay. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that um, I think can help us understand this just a little bit better. Unsure if the council had the right to question the warrant, the sheriff delivered Joseph and Porter over to the city marshal and left town to ask the governor what he should do. When he returned two days later, the sheriff searched for his prisoners, but they were nowhere to be found. So who who's the governor in this context? 
Thanks. Is this the Illinois governor? So to back up, on the 8th of August in 1842, three office, legal officers come to Nauvoo to arrest Porter Rockwell and Joseph Smith. They are coming on authority of both Missouri's governor and Illinois' governor. Okay. So uh, Lilburn Boggs, after he was shot, uh, a few months after actually, he issues an affidavit saying that he believes Joseph is responsible. And so... And that triggers a requisition attempt by uh, Missouri's current governor, Thomas Reynolds. And he then sends a requisition to Illinois' current governor, Thomas Carlin. We deal with a lot of Governor Thomases uh, in this situation. Even Carlin's uh, replacement, Ford, will also be Thomas, <laughs> Thomas Ford. It, it helps keep things simple. At any rate, so uh, Thomas Carlin, Illinois' governor, is who actually issues the arrest warrant for Joseph. Okay. So these officers show up in Nauvoo on the 8th of August intending to arrest Rockwell and Joseph, who immediately take advantage of the legal tool of habeas corpus to go before Nauvoo's municipal court. Oh, can you remind us? Our, our listeners, just briefly, what does that mean, habeas corpus? You bet. So habeas corpus is a, a legal tool whereby someone is brought before a judge or court to challenge the legality of either arrest or incarceration. In this case, it was to challenge the legality of the arrest. Habeas corpus, it's important, I think, to note. I mean, it's been called the great writ of American liberty simply because it it ensures that those arrested and incarcerated have an opportunity to challenge um, the basis for their arrest. We can now, get to a judge at some point and say, hey, th this isn't even legal. Exactly. Now, it's important, though, to remember what it doesn't do. Habeas corpus never results in a trial. It always results in a hearing. So it can never result in a verdict, for instance, of not guilty. It can't exonerate someone or find someone innocent. It doesn't look at the charges on which the person was arrested. All it looks is at the actual arrest itself. And so at the hearing, Joseph ends up, I mean, again, not to give away too much of the, the story here, a spoiler, but Joseph ends up being discharged. That doesn't mean, though, that he can't be arrested again on the same charge. This isn't a double jeopardy situation as in the case that you would have if it were a trial on Got these it. charges. Got so it. he basically, it wasn't legal the way that they arrested him. That That's correct. When it does end up going before... Judge Nathaniel Pope in a hearing in Springfield in January of uh, 43, Pope discharges Joseph and his determination is that the is that the arresting documents issued by the state of Missouri had been defective. So yeah, Joseph. So was for our history buffs out there, I know we've got some listening. Is it the Nathaniel Pope? Yeah, uh, Nathaniel Pope was um, a major figure, of course, in, in Illinois politics and the legal system, a federal Supreme Court justice, uh, often referred to as the father of Illinois statehood. He, as much as anyone, was responsible for the passage of Illinois' charter. It's fascinating that these characters of American history and, of course, history of the church kind of interact at this moment uh, there in Illinois. Indeed. Okay, so... Moving back to, to Nauvoo, jo Joseph's out. We've we, we still got charges, I guess, pending, but he's living in Nauvoo. There's a man by the name of John C. Bennett. Can you tell us a little bit about John? When did he arrive on the scene and kind of what's his backstory? Uh, John C. Bennett um, is 
a pretty infamous character in Mormon history, and uh, it's because of his quick rise to fame within Mormonism. He actually became Nauvoo's first mayor when the city was incorporated. So uh, Bennett had been the quartermaster general of the Illinois State Militia. He had had experience in, in politics and in incorporation of different organizations. He arrived in Nauvoo the first week or two of September in 1840 and very quickly started uh, influencing Joseph to get the city of Nauvoo incorporated. They had come from experiences in northern Missouri that they didn't want to repeat, so they wanted to protect the city and saints legally uh, as well as militarily, and Bennett was instrumental in helping pass or should say lobby to get Illinois uh, Nauvoo's charter passed by the Illinois legislature. But not only that, he also ends up becoming a, a counselor in the church's first presidency within about half a year of becoming a member of the church. So uh, he very quickly comes to positions of importance, both as mayor of the city and uh, in the church uh, leadership. But then has a, a very public demise or a fall from grace within the church when it comes out in the late spring and early summer of 1842 that he's been involved in in all sorts of um, nefarious activities in Nauvoo, well, specifically uh, in regards to plural marriage. So, so before we get to that part, which sure. is difficult, there's this rumor swirling around John um, there are some people that are sent out to kind of substantiate, you know, what's, what is his background? Because he just starts to seem like he's not who he said he was. Um, who, who's sent out and what do they find? So most of the investigation into Bennett's background happens in May and June of 1842, even April, when, when there's an interest in determining whether he is a legitimate Mason in good standing. Mm. So Nauvoo's Masonic Lodge, uh, the, the Nauvoo Lodge under dispensation has just been officially created in March of 42, and it's an important part of that. And there are questions arising because of these accusations that Bennett is philandering with with uh, women in the city and starting to look into his character. Now, those weren't the first times that uh, church leaders had received reports that Bennett might be of dubious character, but because of his uh, important activities in helping Nauvoo gain its charter, some of those were kind of backburnered, if it's safe to say, only mm -hmm. because he was proving a helpful and useful and seemingly a sincere uh, new church member and, and member of politics in Western Illinois. But they started looking to see if he was a, a Mason in good standing, and it came to light that he actually had been um, expelled from a charge in, in Ohio, the Pickaway Lodge. So around that time, Nauvoo's Lodge starts investigating him, and it's Again, it's tied to these accusations that he's been going around saying that Joseph has been giving him authority to seduce these women. Plural marriage, of course, is rolling out quietly with only a few people being introduced to it, uh, close, loyal people to Joseph Smith. And, and Bennett takes advantage of that lack of awareness, lack of information about what's going on. So, so that would be very confusing for people, I can imagine, because... So some people are being introduced to it, but then he's just taking it and running with it. And yeah, so what? yeah, and not and not Bennett alone. I mean, he uh, others are following his lead, um, Francis Higby and others. And so there's a high council 
movement, uh, Hiram Smith and George Miller and others trying to investigate Bennett and some of these other men to, to see whether they are indeed um, taking advantage of this um, lack of awareness. So what, is, what does Bennett call his, his system? Well, uh, Bennett, Bennett does what, uh, what Joseph is doing, uh, spiritual wifery. And uh, that term, uh, though, is used both by members of the church to describe legitimate plural marriage, but mm-hmm. also he makes it famous in, in his anti-Mormon writings by describing this kind of manufactured, um, exaggerated system that he accuses Joseph of being involved in. So when Bennett is excommunicated, uh, 11th of May, 42, and then in the ensuing weeks, when it becomes public that he's been cut off from the church, he immediately starts writing very heavy, very volatile tile uh, accusations against Joseph and the church. They end up being published all over the country, but starting in in the famous uh, Sengamo Journal, in, published in Illinois State Capitol in Springfield, but then culminating in a book that Bennett publishes that fall, which becomes really the second major anti-Mormon book uh, in early church history. Let, wow. Let's pause for just a second. I want to play one clip here from the book that talks about this moment where John has kind of been discovered, John C. Bennett, he hasn't gone off the rails yet. He's not writing his, his newspaper articles and he's not publishing his book. Let's just listen to this little clip. The two men stepped outside, and John saw the prophet crossing the yard to his store. Reaching for him, John cried out, Brother Joseph, I am guilty. His eyes were red with tears. I acknowledge it, and I beg of you not to expose me. So as, as I read this, Alex... It feels like to me that John was more worried about the public perception than actually admitting wrongdoing. It just seems so obvious, you know, and maybe that's because I'm all these years separated and, and all this. I just kind of want to reach out to Joseph and say, don't wait. This guy is not going to be good. But he wavers for a minute and he kind of doesn't expose him right away. But it Eventually, as you said, it comes to public light. Well, I think that the story of John C. Bennett and Joseph and their um, their relationship is is an interesting one and insightful into Joseph Smith's character and personality. Uh, Joseph ends up not only keeping Bennett's um, excommunication quiet initially, but even defends uh, Bennett. Well doesn't defend Bennett's actions, but acts as Bennett's defense in in trying to give Bennett a second chance, a chance to redeem himself uh, with the Masonic Lodge and with the church leaders. And I think it's a great example of Joseph Smith understanding who this man is, but seeing his potential, seeing his value and offering him an opportunity to sincerely repent. Even after Bennett has started writing these extreme anti-Mormon writings, Joseph Smith writes to another uh, another Bennett, a fellow named James Arlington Bennett back in New York, a, a prominent um, author. And Joseph writes and describes this situation with John C. Bennett. And he, he says in that letter, I was his friend, I, I am yet his friend, as I am a friend to all the sons of Adam. I mean, he says, regardless of the fact that I'm currently in hiding because this man has, you know, kind of gotten up the state of Missouri to come after me, uh, I, I bear no continued lingering hostility toward this man. I mean, he's still ready to reach out and 
and offer a, a welcoming hand. I, I think it's one of the best demonstrations and stories we have of, of Joseph Smith's willingness to forgive. I personally believe that Joseph is quick to rebuke people when he thinks it's needed, but equally quick to uh, forgive, and this, this story demonstrates that. I guess I'm just too judgmental because I, <laughs> I just want to say, no, just kick him out. He's just going to be awful. And it, it, it's, I'm just so glad you shared that with us that it helps us understand kind of the prophet's character. Perhaps just more forgiving and more aware of what people's value really is than, you know, than I'm capable of seeing just as, just as an average person. I think it's telling that after Bennett resigns as mayor of Nauvoo and Joseph replaces him, that the Nauvoo City Council passes a resolution in one of their regular meetings thanking Bennett for his years of service. This is, I, sorry, not years, but for his important service uh, to the city and to the church, um, that they recognize the value that he contributed despite his very obvious and now public faults. So as I was reading the book, I thought it was interesting because Bishop Newell K. Whitney says, without the female, all things cannot be restored to the earth. And he shares that in the context of these Relief Society members being forgiving to these women and, and understanding that they were manipulated. And even though they'd, you know, sinned virtually, that they still needed to be supported. Yeah, thanks. I think it's I think it's fascinating that the earliest days of the Relief Society, membership was limited. I mean, people were investigated as they, uh, for worthiness as they joined the society. It's not like today where, where any woman in the church becomes by default essentially a, a member of the Relief Society. When the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo is created, Joseph Smith instructed them to be careful that the women who were members of the group were of upstanding moral character. And so when these accusations start surfacing, not only about Bennett, but that he's, he and others have seduced some of these women, there are also investigations into members of the Relief Society in, into their morality, what part, what role they may have played. And I think it's I think it's important to remember that Joseph, when he speaks to the society, he instructs them and reminds them uh, to be charitable, to be merciful, to be forgiving, and to recognize that these women are not at fault for being manipulated by, by the evil doings of men like Bennett and Higby and some of these others, but rather to be charitable, uh, really one of the foundational mores of the institution. It's a fascinating moment. And like you said earlier, another picture into the prophet's character, but also I think into the character of the Lord. You know, this is the way he wants us to treat each other, is to be forgiving. And I, I, I love that. Thank you for bringing that up, Shaylin. Let's listen to another little quote here from the book. This is uh, depicting Joseph Smith in hiding, who is essentially avoiding this extradition attempt. Here's a little clip from the book. Even in hiding, unjustly hunted by his enemies, he exulted in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we hear in the gospel, he asked the saints? A voice of gladness, a voice of mercy from heaven, and a voice of truth out of the earth. He wrote jubilantly of the Book of Mormon, of angels restoring the priesthood and its keys, and of God revealing his plan line upon line and precept upon precept. Shall we not go on in so great a cause, he asked. What an incredible quote from 
uh, uh, this moment when I would just be in despair. Yeah, uh, a fugitive. I thank you. I agree. I think that Joseph Smith's um, his personality and his thought processes come through more clearly in this little segment of time than they do for most of his years in Nauvoo. If I can maybe provide a little context for that very quickly, I think it's interesting that in Nauvoo we have an explosion of available records to us created by Joseph and other church members. And yet it can actually be difficult to come to know who Joseph Smith was simply because he employs so many clerks and scribes. He's so busy. At one moment, he's a prophet and a father, of course, but also the city's mayor, the head of the municipal court, a store owner, a farm owner, a newspaper editor, um, uh, the largest land land speculator in the area. I mean, oh, he's wearing all these different hats. And so when he is in hiding during these fall of 1842 months, it gives him an opportunity to reflect that otherwise we don't see. He writes letters during this time period uh, to Emma, to General Wilson Law, and to others. He receives letters from them, and he has his clerks, um, Erastus Darby, William Clayton, Eliza Snow, write in his journal for this period uh, these reflections. He dictates long entries in the middle of August where he is reflecting on those who have been loyal to him, on his thoughts about life, about things uh, that give an insight, uh, a window into Joseph's thought processes and soul that we really don't get during other other times during these final years of his life. And so quotes like this one you just read, uh, I don't know that we would have them uh, during busier times where he's not in hiding and doesn't have kind of a forced, compelled moment to sit back and contemplate some of these things. Uh, it's these same weeks that generate uh, what are now known as sections 127 and 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants, these letters that he writes while in hiding to church members to be read in their Sabbath meetings because he's not available to go and give them instruction himself. It's an important time period for that reason alone, just to just to show us kind of the inner Joseph. And I didn't realize how much he was actually in hiding. I mean, you hear about the major arrests and, and more of the major times that he was in hiding, but I love that you shared that perspective of how that gave us some really important revelation and information when he was in those times. Cause I don't think we get that just when we read the doctrine and covenants, we pick out verses or, you know, I read the section headings, but I don't really understand that whole context and the timing and really how much he was away from his family and his other responsibilities. And so I appreciate understanding that. Yeah, thanks. It's fascinating, right? I mean, he write, he writes these two letters that become these important sections. He's writing about the need to keep records in the church and the duties of the of the church's clerks and that kind of thing. At a moment when he himself is on the run, uh, avoiding uh, avoiding um, extradition. Fascinating. Wow. Alex, eventually, Joseph does kind of give himself up, right? Can you tell us what what happens and who does he give himself up to and, and, and where do they go to kind of resolve this? Sure. So uh, if we can step back just a moment to habeas corpus again, the reason that the saints use this so much, so frequently, and, and in Joseph's case, usually successfully, is that habeas corpus allowed them to challenge jurisdictional issues that they were concerned with. So Joseph thought that for sure extradition to Missouri would mean his death. Either he would be brought back and 
actually be uh, sentenced to death legally, right, right. or that some at some point during his conveyance through the state of Missouri, he would be uh, lynched. You know, uh, yeah. so for for the saints, it was this this jurisdictional tool. Joseph was concerned that these officers originating from Missouri would not you know, give him a, a fair shake, if you will, if he were taken back to Missouri. But that changes with the election of a new Illinois governor. So when Thomas Ford replaces Thomas Carlin as governor of Illinois, he's decidedly uh, more and more kindly disposed toward the Mormons than Carlin had been. And he kind of assures Joseph, if you give yourself up, come to Springfield for a hearing I've polled the Supreme Court justices of Illinois and they've assured me that you will be discharged. And so Joseph Smith then with that kind of assurance from the governor actually turns himself over to one of his friends and companions, uh, General Wilson Law, to be taken to Springfield. So on the 27th of December, 42, they start making their way in the middle of winter to the state capitol. After four or five days' journey, they arrive there and have what becomes a very famous hearing. Cool. I mean, it draws the attention and interest of all the people locally. The the Illinois House of Representatives breaks session when Joseph arrives in town. Um, Let's listen to, so, in fact, a yeah. little clip here um, that from the book that talks about this moment. Joseph's arrival in Springfield caused an uproar. Curious spectators crowded the courtroom across the street from the new Capitol building, pressing together and craning their necks to catch a glimpse of the man who called himself a prophet of God. Which is Joe Smith, someone asked. Is it that big man? What a sharp nose, said someone else. He is too smiling for a prophet. <laughs> yeah. It seems like maybe they didn't get what they were expecting. Well, yeah, he was a celebrity uh, one one way or the other. Whether people liked him or not, they were all interested in, in seeing him. The courtroom that Joseph's hearing was held in during those first days in January uh, was filled to capacity. It, it was in what's called the Tinsley Building in the downtown central block at that time of Springfield, right across uh, the street from the state capitol building. In fact, it was in the same building that Abraham Lincoln's law office would be housed only a few months later. Uh, Lincoln's new bride, um, Mary Todd, was one of the attendees for all three days of Joseph's hearing. There's a fun little account that has now become fairly well known that I don't recall uh, being included in Saints Volume 1, but that gives a little picture of this. So Joseph is being represented by a very capable attorney named uh, Justin Butterfield. And uh, we already mentioned that the famous Nathaniel Pope is sitting on the bench presiding. He's surrounded on the bench by women. Uh, we're told nine women, at least on one day, one of whom is uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. And so Joseph is there and some of the apostles that joined him on the trip, Willard Richards and others. And so Joseph's attorney, Justin Butterfield says, I find myself, his opening remarks, I find myself in the curious position of standing here before the Pope, pointing at Nathaniel <laughs> Pope, surrounded by angels, referring to the women sitting next to him, defending the prophet in the presence of his apostles, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, just kind of captures the, the surreal uh, moment in a way where the whole town has rolled out to, to see Joseph. 
Mary Todd's husband was across the street preparing his own case and presenting his own case in the state capitol, and yet she uh, didn't attend a- Abraham Lincoln's uh, case, but rather this, uh, this famous hearing of Joseph Smith. It's a really incredible moment in church history as, as well as, you know, the national American history. And I just say to our listeners, uh, there's much more uh, that you can learn about this at this moment in church history and, and in the prophet's life and the lives of the saints. We've come to the conclusion of this episode, so I would just say thank you, Alex and uh, Shay Lynn, for being with us today. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And as always, you can learn more about saints by visiting saints.lds.org, where you can get the latest chapters, videos, and read the topics, such as the Missouri extradition attempts, as we've talked about today. And as always, you can subscribe to this podcast and many others at themormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. 